You're listening to Members of the Jury, the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice, where the passion, players, and consequences are real. Each episode, we examine current events happening in the system. From the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform, we bring those stories here to you, the members of the jury, because we aren't afraid to take it to the box. What's up, members of the jury, and happy Freedom Friday. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode. This week, we will be discussing a policy breakdown. And before we get into the nitty gritty of the episode, I wanted to give an insight into the current injustices that are happening across the country, and and that is dealing with mass incarceration. And a lot of that stems from the war on drugs, which in my opinion, and I think what the episode is going to be about, is how for decades now this country has been mishandling those who suffer from substance abuse addiction and those who ultimately commit crimes to further that addiction. And and I think there's two different types of categories that this will address. And I, I think the metrics are clear that simply sending those to prison is not the solution. Addiction is unfortunately a mindset. If you're familiar with mental health, um, the DSM-5 recognizes substance abuse as a mental health issue. And it is a formal diagnosis that one can suffer from. And and just putting them in a cell isn't going to answer that. Fortunately, today we have a guest who is going to share his own personal story with us. And from his lens, he's going to be able to highlight how the current methodology of treating these individuals is not working and that there are other ways that could not only benefit the individuals, but the criminal justice system as a whole, which and then returns to each individual because it's a better use of our tax dollars, if not saving them. So. Joining us today is Nick from Apex Masculinity Podcast. Nick, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury. Thank you, bro. Thanks for having me on. My name is Nick Chantos. I, as you said, am the founder and host of the Apex Masculinity Podcast, podcast where we try to reach into the lives of hurting men that are basically in a situation that I was in 20 years ago, struggling with addictions to methamphetamines cocaine, pornography, alcohol, I mean, anything that you could put in front of me to alleviate a pain that I had deep inside me that I probably couldn't quantify then, but definitely knew something was there and something was off uh, to being 20 something years later, a published author, public speaker, and podcaster, happily married 15 years with a family, got a six-figure career in the oil and gas industry, but it wasn't always that way, bro. There was a time in my life when I lived under a bridge in El Paso, Texas, man, with nothing to my name, but some warrants for my arrest and a couple dirty syringes in my back pocket, you know, and a sign that I used to fly out on the highway asking people for money because I needed another fix. But there's better ways, you know, people can change. Absolutely. And, and, you know, just that brief introduction into your life, I think is a great great highlight. And you are one of many success stories that are 
why I love doing what I do and why I know that there are better ways to reform the criminal justice system. My favorite quote recently is that we are all better than the worst decisions that we've ever made. And so many of us wouldn't be able to sit in the positions that we're in if that was true, if people, if we allowed to others to define us by the worst things that we did, whether we were caught or not. I, I think that's one of the biggest things, too, that is widely overlooked with regards to the criminal justice system and how society looks at those who have unfortunately been wrapped up in, with side of it is a lot of the times society as a whole is engaging in the same conduct, especially when we get talking, to, when we're looking at substance abuse use and or addiction. And, you know, just because someone happens to get caught doesn't mean that there are those who aren't getting caught who are suffering the same types of who are using the same types of substances and who are having engaging in the same kind of a behavior it's just that unfortunately those who have familial resources and wealth and just guidance oftentimes it can get caught before criminality takes place or even there are times where even after one might get involved with the criminal justice system, but because of their position of privilege, are able to get it diverted or just go to rehab and address it immediately without having to succumb to the negative environments of jails and prisons. So I just want to thank you again so much for sharing your vulnerability. I'm really excited to hear the ins and out of the stories. And so if you wouldn't mind just kind of taking us back um, in as it related to, you know, your addiction and how that ultimately led to your incarceration and how that gave you the footing to be able to discuss what we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just real quick before I do that, something you had mentioned that I want to hit on real quick because I'm kind of an airhead and it'll escape my mind if I don't talk about it. But you were talking about, um, you know, people that were privileged or in a more affluent position, you know, being able to get breaks or uh, get it easier than, you know, people that didn't. Man, I saw that firsthand so many times, you know, wearing that orange jumpsuit, whether I was in juvie, like I started going to juvie when I was 12 and got out on my second stint in prison when I was 24. And all the times I'd be on the chain going down to the courthouse, you would see people that, I mean, they, they, I mean, they didn't even really do anything wrong. Well, I mean, obviously it did, but it wasn't severe, but because they had nobody in their corner, they didn't have a quote unquote real attorney. I say that loosely, they had an attorney, but like somebody that wasn't like really in their corner. You know what I mean? They didn't have any family, didn't have any parents, nothing like that. Those people would get severe punishments, man, severe, lengthy prison sentences, you know? And they tried that to me the first two times I stood in front of that judge. Uh, 10-year shock probation is what they called it in Texas, where they send you to prison for six months, and then they let you out on probation for 10 years, which most convicts know that's a death sentence. Hundred percent. Because if you're yeah, if you're struggling with an addiction or you haven't like had your wake up call yet, it's all you got to do is mess up once, and it doesn't matter if you're on year nine, month nine, day nine of that ten year probation sentence. They'll revoke you that fast and trade it for a ten year prison sentence. And that third time that I went in front of that judge, my mom was able to scare up some real finances to get like, um, again, I, I, and I know I'm saying this the wrong way, but to get like a, a, a higher paid attorney law firm in my corner. And the minute that happened, the 10 years went away 
it was a year and a half in prison. And I was just blown away how that little bit, having people in your corner makes the difference or having money behind you or something like that. But no, my story, man, started out growing up in a really tragic, like living situation. Uh, stepfather got in the picture when I was like four. Uh, he drank a lot when I was younger, uh, had a severe temper issue, would fly off the handle, was verbally, physically, emotionally, you know, mentally abusive. The words, I think, now that I look back, were probably more debilitating than the actual physical stuff. Because when you tell somebody they're a worthless piece of garbage over and over again, or you validate that that's how you feel about somebody by knocking them into a wall or just throwing them out on the porch when they're younger. You create this sense within people where they feel unloved, unvalidated, unsupported. They don't belong. And when you're a child, we don't know this, but during the ages of like four to like nine are the, are the most formative years of the neural pathways of your brain when you're an adolescent child. Like your worldview and your world of self is being developed 10x at that point. And as you grow up in that environment and you start getting into adolescence and adulthood, early adulthood, you have this deep-seated ideology about yourself that tells you you're without value, without love, without support, without validation. You have no self-confidence, self-esteem, self-image, you have no sense of self-worth and no sense of self-identity. Like you don't even know who you are or what you're supposed to be doing. And these are human needs. Like people need this stuff in order to function properly, even at a normal place in society. And when you don't have that and that deep-seated pain is going on inside you, man, our brains are looking for the fastest way out of that pain that it can get us to. And quite honestly, the brain doesn't have a compass. You know what I mean? It just wants to feel dopamine and not cortisol. So that's when people start using. Well, and I think you just raised an excellent point too, because, and, and it's going to go to the heart of the issue of what we're discussing today is that when you incarcerate those who are suffering from the, the substance abuse or who, who are committing, you know, petty crimes so that they can further their drug use, the incarceration is doing the exact opposite of what that individual needs, as you just highlighted. You know, the biggest thing is surrounding them with resources and guidance and, and quite frankly, love, because a lot of the times that is what is a root cause to them being in the situations that they're being in. And instead of giving them that type of environment to potentially thrive, it's putting them almost in isolation where, you know, if it's prison, you maybe get one celly. If it's county, maybe a couple. But, you know, you're definitely not talking to your family unless they're coming to visit. It puts an enormous burden on on your loved ones to try to, you know, keep that relationship intact because obviously you can't go anywhere as an incarcerated individual. And if money isn't running wild, then, you know, good luck to phone calls. It, we, you know, we've talked about that on prior episodes here, that they just charge outrageous prices for that. And so oftentimes that's not even a viable alternative. So I just thought that that was a, a really key point to highlight on so early in the process. Um, you know, ultimately with you, you know, we heard about some of these struggles and it, it to me, I can totally resonate with that. You know, and, and for me, I think that sympathy is one of the biggest thing that's lacking in the criminal justice system. And based on those hardships that you've expressed, you know, I, I see, you know, it, it's common pathway, unfortunately, for that to lead to at least some drug use. And then once drug use occurs, then, you know, 
it's kind of a, a random path as to what happens after that. And so um, as it led to you, what finally, um, you know, you talked about how you were given that shock probation period. Was there a time where, you know, that got violated or while you were during doing that probation, what did you feel were some of the burdens that prevented you from actually progressing? Oh, sure. So you get out of county jail with this shock probation and you're instantly homeless because you have nowhere to live, right? Because either you've been in jail for so long, if you had a place, you've lost it, or whatever family you might've lived with, you've burned those bridges and you can't go there. So you're immediately homeless. And if you wanna try to find a homeless shelter to live in, good luck in a Metroplex area like El Paso, Texas, or LA or wherever, you know. But if you do, you are immediately surrounded by the same, and I say this with love and compassion, the same type of riffraff that you're trying to pull yourself out of. You know what I mean? And, you know, good luck finding a job with a rap sheet. And some of these guys get out, they don't have an ID, they don't have a social security, there's no way to present like two forms of valid ID to even get a job. And then you got this thing hot on your heels, this man sitting in an office telling you, hey, in 30 days, if you don't have a place to stay, you know, and you don't have a job, like, I'm starting to put check marks by your name, you know what I mean? And if you get three of them, we're gonna have to figure something out kind of a thing. And these men grow up, and I speak from experience, we grew up without being taught how to solve basic real world problems, like finding lodging, like getting employment, you know, getting a couple paychecks saved up. Like nobody is like getting down at their level, like a little child, you lean down at their level and really instruct them step-by-step step on what to do. You're just thrown into the mix and good luck sink or swim. You know what I mean? And for me, I just saw the uh, writing on the wall. I saw the tea leaves, bro. And I'm like, I'm out of here. You know what I mean? Come and find me. So I ended up going to Alaska and I was kind of hiding out with, you know, obviously I've, I didn't show up for parole or probation. So, you know, a couple months into it, I got warrants for my arrest, but I'm hiding out working on fishing boats up in Alaska, kind of doing my thing for a couple of years until they finally caught up with me. But the reoccurring pattern from juvie all the way through county into prison that I saw with these men was toxic masculine influence or no positive masculine influence in the home. And that's not to say that a single mom can't raise quality boys because I've seen that, but it takes an extreme amount of focus and effort to produce that. These men had or had no fatherly masculine influence in their lives and they don't know what to do with themselves. You know what I mean? Well, you raised an interesting point. What would you, I'm interested to see, what would your, based on your experience, what would your criticism or your retort be to those who say, well, you know, when you were put on probation, you were given the opportunity to, you know, better yourself. And, and why wouldn't you better yourself if you were looking at a prison term? I mean, you know, they sometimes give you a halfway house to live in or like you indicated there could be a shelter. You know, why don't you just, you know, do better, make better choices? What What's society not understanding with just because someone is essentially placed on probation, that's not some type of goldmine resource that allows people to actually make the changes that they need to make. <laughs> right. I like that, bro. It's <laughs> really good. You know, um, I think I, I think just being overwhelmed with the idea that you're walking on eggshells for the next 10 years and kind of just being honest with yourself and saying, what are my chances? that I'm really going to do this. 
I'm already programmed in my mind through experience to believe that I can't succeed and that everything I try to do ends up failing. You know what I mean? So what makes me think I'm going to win here? And then when you factor in all of the discussions that, you know, convicts, they're smart, bro, like street smart wise, you know, they talk and they know what's going on, you know, and I watched the state of Texas go from 12 prisons all through the 1900s. And then, bam, when George Bush, and I don't mean to get political and I won't, but like just that time frame when George Bush became president, or I'm sorry, governor, because he was governor of Texas before he became president of the United States, we went from 12 prisons, prisons to 110 prisons within a decade. And it turned into a business. And everybody knew that. So these guys are out on the street, they're not working, they're not paying taxes, they're not contributing positive, you know, positive resource and positive uh, income back into society. We're going to lock these guys up and we're going to use tax dollars to provide jobs for uh, prison, uh, prison guards, for, you know, all the transportation that's involved, for all the services that are involved. And in my mind, I always saw it as a way like, well, if they're not going to get a nickel out of us. They're going to use us to create five nickels for other people, you know what I mean, and stimulate the economy that way. And when you know that in your mind, you're already like, look, these guys have an unwritten rule. Keep them running through the system because that's how revenue is generated. And when you know you're up against that, man, you just, you know, I've seen guys go into their court, their court uh, sentences and be told, look, man, I got a deal for you. You can have six years probation right now or two years in the joint. And who's not going to choose who's not going to choose freedom? You know, right. Most people would be like, oh, I got to get out. I got to get out. But the smarter guys knew. Give me the two years because I'm a nonviolent offender. I'll be out in nine months. I got 14 months to do on paper and then I'm done. The smart guys knew that because they knew they would get out of that system faster. And if they took the six years, they were just prolonging the inevitable because they were going to get revoked and they were going to go back. Well, that's also one of the tricks, I think, of probation is that a probation condition could be something that's not even against the law. And so it's able to really debilitate and restrict individuals lives you know they could be ordered not to drink alcohol even though they're over 21 they could be ordered you know in states that have legal cannabis they can be ordered not to possess or use it um, even though it's within their statutory rights and so that's why probation violations are so uh, crafty because the simple violation could then result in a you know huge prison sentence i mean i think that's became even really nationally known with with regards to the Meek Mills and how I think it was like a probation condition where he couldn't be riding like the four wheelers or him doing the wheelie on the four wheeler in the street ended up with him resulting in going to prison where any other person who wouldn't be on probation is maybe a traffic citation. So I think that that raises an excellent point. You know, I think that's a great segue to further dive into how the current treatment of incarceration and probation models with those who suffer from substance abuse isn't working. You know, we talked a little bit about how probation really doesn't, isn't this goldmine of resources to just uh, someone overlooking you to kind of constantly remind you of the threat of going to prison. And we know psychology wise that the carrot and the stick method really doesn't work on individuals. Some it does maybe, but the 
exceptions don't make the rule. And so what was it about the, you know, those who do go to prison, you know, you'll hear critics say that, well, they have, they have the ability to go to classes and, you know, obviously they're doing, they're being sober in when they're incarcerated, you know, what's the issue with, with rehabilitating those who suffer from substance abuse with just straight incarceration time? Uh, without any type of classes or any programs, you mean just like straight incarceration time? Is that what you're asking? Or the fact that, you know, when people would say, well, they, if they really wanted to better themselves, they could once they get sent to prison, they could they could try to get classes while in prison. You know, that's a really murky one there for me, bro, because I mean, I've got obviously a lot of experience doing time and a lot of experience rebuilding my life back to a place that I'm really proud of. But, man, you got to take a lot of that stuff on an individual case by case basis, because if you can get a guy off the streets and get him sober for long enough and then start inputting this information in some of these programs or classes to him while he has a sound mind and doesn't have access to narcotics, I could see that as being helpful. But a guy like that certainly doesn't need a 15 year prison sentence because he got busted with an eight ball of meth you know what I mean? You know, where you're from in California, like 80 bucks worth of meth, give him 15 years in print. That's, that's too much. You know what I mean? You got to give a guy short, in my opinion, a short sentence. If you're going to give him a sentence, give him a short sentence, get him away from all that. Let his mind heal. Let him sober up. Let him have some time of reflection. Let him start weighing out what he's losing as opposed to what he's gaining by staying in that life and then start introducing some of these classes and some of this information. But even, even with that said, it depends on who's giving the classes and who's providing the information because I've sat in some classes where I couldn't even stay awake. It was just some guy on the payroll for the state that was coming in, talking to people about 12-step recovery. And you can tell like he cared as much about it as probably everybody else in the room at the time. Not at all. You know what I mean? But then I've been in some classes where the person giving, you know, the instruction or the lesson is a recovering addict, is a former drug addict, is a former convict, and they're passionate about what they're doing. And they're approaching what they're teaching in a way to where it's really catching fire in someone's spirit or soul, so to speak. And you can see the light bulb start coming on in these guys. But it's so many dynamics, so many moving parts to determine what's going to work and what's not going to work. But I think if you give people shorter sentences, you're going to eventually catch them in a loop where they start be becoming self-reflective. The first time they get down, it might not happen. They're probably just thinking about how fast I can get out of here and go get high again. The second time they go down, now they're reflecting, well, this time I lost my girl and we had a baby. And I lost my kid because of my addiction. So now they're in a place of deeper reflection on their life. And if you can introduce programs and material and classes and stuff at that point, you probably have a better chance of catching that guy. But yeah, like I said, man, there's a lot of dynamics involved on how to time that. I agree wholeheartedly that, you know, certain isolation away from temptations that led to drug use it can be beneficial. I think my critique criticism of simply just relying on incarceration is that even if classes are available and even if an individual wants to partake in said classes that if they're then but sent to a prison 
as you were indicating, there are so many different dynamics, right? You're sent to a prison where not everybody is going to be like-minded like you. Not everybody is going to try to be on the path of rehabilitation and recovery. Not everybody there is, is there for, you know, drug consumption. And so I think the dynamics in which prisons present is what kind of holds so many people back, which is why for me as a public defender, we are always trying to argue for residential treatment facilities in lieu of actual custody time, right? And so what is it, do you think, more so about the dynamic of the prisons that don't allow individuals to thrive with recovery and re- rehabilitation, but in an, at an environment of a, like a RTP, it, it does allow for that? I think I think it's obviously going to boil down to the person where they're at in that moment emotionally and psychologically but the inpatient rehabilitation centers like a, you know like the homes that people go to where there's like 10 beds in there or something like that those those are those are good places too like I see those having great effect too I just wonder if um if it's court ordered like are they allowed to leave if you can provide not just sitting in a cell, but giving a man an opportunity or a woman an opportunity to actually go out and work so that they can start earning a living and building this self-confidence within themselves that they're capable of being accomplishment-driven, goal-centered, achievement-driven, and you provide opportunities for them uh, to raise their life up, you know, you got them in an assisted or not an assisted living, but like an inpatient treatment center. And there's requirements that say, all right, look, man, let's get your license. Let's get your driver's license. Like, let's have that be a goal. All right, man, like, let's get a job. You know what I mean? Let's have that be your next goal. And you stage out these small accomplishments for these people that quite honestly, up to the point when they get to that place, have never attempted to be accomplished in anything. And hopefully they would see with their own hands and with their own eyes, what their own capabilities are as they kind of have someone standing over their shoulder and providing that living space for them. Like I totally see that working too, but prison's not going to provide that. You're not going to get a chance to work and make money. You're not going to get a chance to get your driver's license. You're not going to get a chance to, uh, you know, uh, do your own laundry and, and, and do your own meals and all this stuff, you know, cause all that's provided for you. So there's really no opportunity in prison for a person to use their own resources to better their life. They're just kind of stuck there. You know what I mean? But at the same time, you kind of get into some dicey areas where, all right, this guy grew up in a tragic family situation. He was abused or this girl was sexually abused. So that's why she's on fentanyl. You know, she's, stealing purses out of shopping carts at Walmart so she can get her next hit of fentanyl. She's not a bad person. She's just trying to entertain this drug habit because she's in a lot of pain. But then on the other side of that coin, you got the guy on the corner that's moving kilos worth of fentanyl, methamphetamines, heroin, cocaine. At what point does, I guess I'm asking you this, in your opinion, just for conversation's sake, at what point does prison become necessary? You know what I mean? Like for the greater good of society kind of a thing. Because obviously that one girl stealing purses to get her next fix doesn't need to spend 20 years there. She needs real-time help. But at the same time, I I, I wouldn't want to ever say that prison is not a necessary thing. 
me personally, I don't ever think that, I, as you indicated, you know, a, a long prison sentence, I think those should be few and far between unless, you know, crime is extremely heinous or someone has just a continuous pattern of violence and, and recklessness. I think with those, it would really be what I'd like to look at as a case-by-case analysis. But what, and from my personal experience, those that are... You know, it depends. I, I think, is it the drug seller who's selling to stimulate their addiction? Or is it the drug seller who, you know, is really looking at to just profit off of the tragedies of others, quite frankly? Because to me, those are two different root causes to the criminality. And so how you address them is different. Those that are, who may be selling their substance, but just to further their use of it, you know, I think that they're looked at the same amount of way. I mean, I think maybe... I, my biggest, I think, and that's where we're transitioning to and and with regards to better solutions, mandating residential treatment facilities is, is better. You know, obviously, the first thing that you'll I've learned is that you're not going to be able to help someone who doesn't want to help themselves. You know, my unfortunately, um, I, I'm the son of an addict. My mother was uh, an alcoholic. And, you know, I saw firsthand how someone who suffers from the disease of addiction struggles making logical choices. And if they don't ever want to fix themselves, then they're not going to. But I still think that there are certain parameters that one and restrictions that can be placed on individuals that could help them rehabilitate to the degree of, you know, not committing crimes to feed their addiction. You know, I don't think actual incarceration is necessary. A lot of times I think house arrest um, is an alternative, especially because then you're not forcing someone to do that what they don't want to do with regard to recovery. But again, on these victimless crimes, I don't think society as a whole should be paying millions, if not billions of dollars to, like you were indicating, provide you know, what is it, three hots and a cot to those who were simply committing crimes that the only person that was adversely affected is themselves. If they want to ingest a controlled substance, then then that's their choice. And like we were talking about, you know, how many people are doing that type of conduct behind scenes that aren't getting caught. And so how can then the society turn their nose down on those who do get caught and say those people deserve prison? Yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. If you have to pick one or the other, as it relates to providing alternative solutions for people that have victimless crimes with addiction, residential treatment centers is always going to be the first pick because you are guaranteed to go to a facility where the entire context of that facility is going to be geared towards helping that person understand why they're broken, why they use what what kind of things they can do to prevent and predict triggers and relapse they're going to begin to learn themselves learn their addiction learn their triggers and get some information by way of tools whether or not they use it or whether or not it takes a couple falls and rises again to you know really figure out the whole recovery process at least they're being given information and tools to help with that process rather than sitting in prison wasting a life with no resources, no hope, no help, no information, no tools, nothing. Just like you said, wasting tax dollars and taking up space for somebody that uh, 
maybe should be there for a violent crime or something like that. You know what I mean? Totally agree with you on that one. I think that was really beautifully said. But I also want to turn the attention back to you. You know, we got a little sidetracked halfway through your story. You know, we heard about how, you know, you were doing that shock probation and had made it your way to Alaska before things caught up to you. I kind of want to flash forward to the future. You know, when we had an opportunity to kind of talk off uh, camera, you know, you were talking about how you were able to make this change and how you have now trotted down the path of rehab and recovery and are doing these amazing things. What was it that allowed you to make that change that wasn't provided to you while you were within the jaws of the criminal justice system? Well, I think the change for me actually started while I was in the justice system, but in, but in a different kind of way. So this is going to be a very authentic conversation in the sense that I had um, a religious experience for me, for myself. And it helped enough to where, because what I desperately needed for myself, Lucas, this is just for me, I needed forgiveness. I needed to forgive myself and know that I was forgiven for all the people I had hurt, all the people that I had wounded, all the bad choices, people I had abandoned, you know, all of the really bad things that were weighing heavy on my own mind, you know, and my religious experience and practice when I was in prison the second time really provided that and put me on a better trajectory and got me around some other people that were also on a more solid trajectory. However, tongue in cheek on this, when I got out of prison, uh, I continued on that path. But what I kept noticing in my life, see, I got out in 2004. Um, so it's been, we're pushing 20 years here. Um, I kept noticing these reoccurring patterns in my life to self-sabotage and some of those self-sabotaging moments were relapses. So like it's happened before and through this long two decade process, uh, 2016 is where I really started to get introspective and start really trying to figure out why this kept happening. And when a person's ready to go deep into their own psychology to figure out why they continue to pull the pin on a hand grenade and throw it into their own life at reoccurring points in their life, the information is liberating. Because what I learned was whenever I would encounter a very stressful situation or a depressed situation where I was being thrown into something that was beyond my capabilities at the time to accomplish or achieve, I would go into shutdown mode. I would start dreaming about going back to prison because I knew it was a safe place. I would start fantasizing about going back to prison. And then I would start acting out in real time, these very toxic choices, sometimes to relapse and use because I was slowly trying to invite that back into my life because I wanted it to lead me back to that safe place where I didn't have to feed myself, clothe myself clean up after myself, shelter myself. It was easy. It was comfortable. It was known. Or when I would go through these very depressive states where, you know, you, we all go through them, you come up against something in life and it just knocks the wind out of you and you're depressed about it, you know, and my brain realizes depression is a cortisol release. So it started wanting dopamine to offset the cortisol. And I would find myself during moments of depression, fantasizing about relapsing again, and on some occasions doing just that. 
and I had to, and I had to begin to go into my own psychology and learn where it all started, the child abuse, the childhood trauma, the neuropathway development in my own mind, how the wires got broken, how the neuropathways of my brain are designed to crave the fastest way out of pain. And now that I know that, I can begin to predict relapse and predict triggers. So in, 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 in I guess coming to the conclusion here, for me, it was it started in, in religion. It was an eye-opener for me. It was a wake-up call for me. But going into the psychology of my own mind and understanding my whole person has really helped keep me on a solid trajectory. And even 20 years later, Lucas, I still have dreams about putting needles in my arm. I still have dreams about being in prison. Nick, I think that was such a fascinating point and such a crucial piece of insight with regards to the self-sabotage. But you, I see that time and time again and would submit to you that that is one of, if not probably the leading cause, those who continuously fall victim to their addiction and when times get tough they want to go back to what they're comfortable and like you indicated sometimes it's easier despite what what some may think oh my god the hardships the the misery that prison could be on someone that unfortunately if you know an addict has no other choice but to continuously be sent there there's a level of comfort that then gets embedded in them and it's so difficult to get out of that and to your point i think whether it's religion whether it's family whether it's some other type of nucleus that allows an individual to find a community to find comfort and support that's going to be the biggest thing that helps an individual go through the pathway successfully of rehab and recovery and that's not happening in prison whatsoever and i think that is to me the biggest takeaway that i've had in this conversation and you know i do think again there's so many different alternatives and we've talked about that also on the show there's so many different alternatives to incarceration now where you can still have oversight and restrictions and security that allow an individual to still focus on themselves and better themselves so that after their consequence they're not always left in a worse off position than when they originally started absolutely yeah i totally agree i appreciate that you telling us the story and and how you've made that path to recovery um it also sounds like since you've made that path um successfully down rehab and recovery you are now helping others do the same what are some of the key things that you focus on in helping encourage other other individuals to successfully make their own pathway we were just doing a public speaking event in phoenix a couple weeks ago and uh man we had a blast man a lot of people came and when it was over you always wonder if you're going to do a good job or if you're having impact but when people are in tears in the room or when they come up and they tell you thank you that it was so good you know what i mean uh, it, you, it lets you know you're having impact. And what I what I share with people is it doesn't matter if you grew up with a silver spoon in an affluent family or you grew up in a tragically abusive home where there was sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, parents were fighting, 
you are constantly in low-income housing, always in poverty, always impoverished. It doesn't matter. When you as a person decide that you don't want to live that way anymore, that is the first step. You are now self-aware and awoke. You are now awake. Next thing we bring into people's lives are the tools of understanding that the neural pathways of your brain have billions of connect connective transmission lines that every time you experienced a failure or an abuse in life, it was captured in memory and held there. And now your worldview and, and your view of self is determined by what those neural pathways are. And they are abundantly toxic and negative and self-hating and self-loathing and without self-confidence and self-esteem. So now you want to try to build your life back, but your computer has been programmed for failure, right? In the same way that Steve Jobs or, or, or Bill Gates will program a computer and set its limitations and its functions, and it can't do anything but what it was set to do, because of 20, 30 plus years of negative toxic living, our computers, the ones that sit neatly inside our wet skull, are programmed to believe that we will always fail and this will always be the way it is. But that's not the case. You can repair your mind. You can begin to believe that you are here for purpose. You are here for destiny. You're, you're destined for great things. Um, and you got to just start taking small steps and putting small goals in front of yourself. You know, what, talking about uh, making people go to prison where they have everything done for them or having them go to an assisted living home or whatever the case may be. And people say, well, you were given a chance. Why couldn't you get this sorted? You know, why couldn't you get your act together? And it's like asking a seven-year-old kid to drive a semi. They just don't know how to do that. And now you got this young girl who's in her early 20s and you're trying to get her to get up and make her bed and brush her teeth and like eat a healthy breakfast every day. She hasn't done that her entire life, let alone hold a job, get a driver's license, figure out how to take the bus around town to go get applications. And it's overwhelming to these people, right? But we have to take small steps one at a time, set little challenges. And as we, as we hit those benchmark goals that we set for ourselves, we begin to create new neural pathways in our brain that start to cement the idea that we can achieve, that we can accomplish. I mean, in the beginning, bro, I was living in a beat down trailer, just out of prison. Couldn't believe in myself to be successful for anything. When I got out of prison, I still expected everything in my life to go to crap and to not win. 20 years later, not, not bragging, bro, because I know uh, two, uh, we just bought a $250,000 house. I got a six-figure career in the oil and gas industry, happily married 15 years to the woman of my life. I got beautiful kids. Um, I got a brand that has impact. But like I said in the beginning, 30 years ago, I was that guy under the bridge with drool in his beard, with track marks up and down both of his arms, holding a sign that said, need another fix. Anything helps with nothing to my name, the clothes on my back. You know what I mean? And if you're out there and you're hearing this, I want you to know that anyone can come from any place of brokenness and destitution and build an amazing life for themselves. And you will stumble multiple times on the journey. The trick to winning is get up every single time and keep going. It may take you two decades to get where I'm at. Maybe it'll take you five years to get where I'm at. I hope it does. You know what I mean? It took me 20 years to get here, but anyone 
can build an amazing life for themselves. And they don't need to be in prison to do that. They just need help. Totally agree. And honestly would argue that they can't do that while in prison. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard from substance abuse experts is that, you know, it's the unfortunate truth, but relapse is a part of recovery. And, you know, we have to advocate on that behalf all the time to get individuals their second or third potential opportunity at, you know, residential treatment or a drug diversion in order to see success. It's not always this one stop shop, you know, opportunity. You know, um, as we start to wind down, Nick, I- I'd love to get your take as to, you know, a- after going through the criminal justice system and taking away some good aspects and some bad aspects, systemically speaking, though, what would be something you would love to see changed or immediately implemented to the current system that would help individuals get that awakening earlier on as opposed to necessarily having to go through the process multiple times? To see the individual to see the individual get the wake-up call, they need to be exposed to this information that has to do with the psychology of why they're broken. Because when I went to prison, I thought there was something wrong with me. Like I am a terrible human. Like I am a broken human that does not belong here because there is something psychologically wrong with me, right? Because I keep finding myself in this situation. But when the information was brought to me about how my past affects my future, has affected my present, you know what I mean? Like what I grew up with has made me what I am. And now here are some tools to help you fix it. That was a game changer. Everything changed because I can then put meaning behind what happened in my childhood and understand I am a product of somebody else's toxic, impulsive, abusive behavior. Now I can be comfortable in my own skin and start to fix myself. I think information is power and these people need to be exposed to a lot of, a lot of psychology as, as far as why they are, why they're, why they are the way they are. And that, that's what I would say to help them kind of get out of that pattern. I do not think these lengthy prison sentences, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, uh, it, would, it breaks my heart to think about this. There was a guy in prison or in county jail with me. He went to court the same day I did, and he got 20 years for a narcotic that is now legal. But 20 years ago, it wasn't legal. And he got a 20-year prison sentence. And now that narcotic is legal. You can purchase it at a store over the counter. You know what I mean? I think sentences need to be shorter. And I think program information needs to be more intense and more thoughtful. I would argue uh, more humanization of the individuals. I think the criminal, I think the criminal justice system currently does everything in its powers and authority to dehumanize each individual that comes through with them. That's why they love the generic term defendant instead of individual X or Mister Individual and. You know, you would have to humanize and focus on the individual needs of that person to see more successful rates, in my opinion. But there's currently this mindset of, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And and apparently society hasn't gotten over the fact that mass incarceration is not the way to handle, you know, substance abuse and those who commit crimes to further their substance abuse. 
And so, you know, I think that this episode, it hopefully reaches the masses and people are exposed to the alternatives that, that exist and the reasoning to implement those alternatives. You know, Nick, I really appreciate you not only coming on the show, but sh again, sharing in your vulnerability and giving us all this keen insight. One of the things that we love to do, not only as public defenders, but the intent of this podcast is to take matters to the box, fight up against injustices when we see them and speak out when it might not be the popular thing to do. We always ask our guests, what is the significance of taking matters to the box? Because there are a lot of hurting and broken people that need to be rescued and they need to, they need to be put in an opportunity where they can avoid lost years and in some cases decades of being stuck in a place of ignorance, not knowing that there's a way out of this. You know what I mean? And they can, dude, I know so there was a guy that I, that went to the same prison as I did in Texas, sat at the same stainless steel tables, eating the same dry pancakes every other day. Who's now a coach, multimillionaire builds apps. You know what I mean? He's a public speaker. He's an eight figure earner, like happily married guy, family guy. Like they need the information so they they can come out and build an amazing life for themselves. They deserve that. That's why I do it. That's why I wrote the book. That's why I do the podcast. That's why we do the public speaking. We want to reach. I want to reach that young man who is right now where I was 20 years ago, completely lost, not understanding why this reoccurring pattern won't end in his life and give him the information and the tools that he needs for the light bulb to come on and for him to start taking the first actionable steps to build an amazing life for himself. I love that. I love that. I love that. And I love the success story. I think that the more people that hear success stories, the more it can inspire and aspire individuals who, as you were calling out, may be going through similar things or, you know, haven't even don't even realize that they may find themselves in the situations. But to have this resource ahead of time, it's going to be extremely important. And so I just want to thank you again so much for coming on. Um, and uh, I refer we'll have your podcast uh, link in the show notes and we'll encourage all of our audience to give it a listen and uh, thanks so much well members of the jury that's our show and I rest my case be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter to the box if you're a fan of the show go ahead and subscribe you can also find us on social media at members of the jury if you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhursty at membersofthejurypod.com. The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.